Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Trust Experts. I'm Amber Gunn, Trust Officer for Peak Trust Company. As you know, Peak has a team of trust officers who bring reliable and accessible expertise that the attorneys and advisors we work with demand. One such officer is our guest today, Jan Temple, Senior Trust Officer. Jan will be talking to us about ILIT administration. A little about Jan, she started her career as an attorney but moved into trust administration in 2004. She has been senior trust officer for Peak Trust Company since 2014. Prior to that, she was senior trust officer for Alaska USA Trust Company. Welcome, Jan. Thanks, Amber. I'm happy to be here talking with you. And I would just mention that as a trust officer yourself at Peak, you also have experience dealing with eyelids. Yes, and thank you very much for that. I appreciate the shout out. Today's format is question and answer. I will ask Jan a question and then Jan will share her comments with us. Are you ready, Jan? Yes. Okay, our first question, what exactly is an eyelet? Well, for anyone not familiar with the term eyelet, this acronym I-L-I-T stands for Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust. So basically an eyelet is an irrevocable trust which is designed to be the owner and the beneficiary of one or more life insurance policies. So the term eyelet generally refers to an irrevocable trust that holds only traditional life insurance policies such as term policies, whole life, variable, and um, it does not refer to private placement policies. An eyelet typically, however, can hold assets other than life insurance policies. If in fact it holds other assets such as LLCs, for example, um, the main impact of an eyelet holding other assets is that the trust administration will become more complex and the trustee fees and costs will be much higher than for a traditional eyelet that holds only life insurance. That being said, Peak is a trustee for a large number of irrevocable trusts that hold both life insurance and other assets. So there's no issue with doing that. Absolutely. Next question on our list, what are the benefits of using an eyelet? Well, assuming that the eyelet has been structured and administered properly, there are a number of benefits and these will include the, that the insurance proceeds will not be subject to estate tax. And that in turn assumes that the insured had no incidence of ownership in the policy and had not made a gift of the policy itself to the trust within three years prior to death. Another benefit is that the grantor can utilize annual exclusion gifts to the islet if the islet requires the sending of withdrawal right notices to the beneficiaries, and these are also known as crummy notices. As background, gifts to irrevocable trusts are gifts of future interests that do not qualify for the use of the annual exclusion. By using withdrawal rights, however, the use of those basically converts the gifts to present interests so that the grantor can utilize annual exclusion gifts. So the use of withdrawal rights by beneficiaries, just as a little bit of a background here, mm -hmm. was first approved in a 1968 tax court case called Crummy versus Commissioner. So that 
case was initiated by a gentleman called Mr. Crummy, C-R-U-M-M-E-Y, which is where the term crummy notices comes from. Mm -hmm. So they're not bad things. That's just the man's name. Yes, that is just the gentleman's name. Um, there's another benefit of using an islet in the uh, sense that the islet provides creditor protection for the trust beneficiaries. And this is a very valuable asset for the trust beneficiaries. After a policy matures, that means after the insured person passes away, then the islet typically just is uh, treated like any other irrevocable trusts. Most of the islets will provide for the proceeds to stay in trust because a grantor who sets up an islet generally is working with um, an attorney who recognizes the value of having assets left in trust for beneficiaries. However, there are some islets that after the policy matures, they simply pay out to the beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, those beneficiaries no longer have the asset protection that they would have had if the assets had stayed in the trust. Unfortunately, I've seen that more than once where the policy will mature, the proceeds will pay out, and then the beneficiaries will come to the trustee and say, okay, now um, the insurance is paid out, where's, where's my money? And that's regardless of how the trust is drafted, meaning if it's drafted to continue in trust or be distributed. And what I've seen in my experience is the trustee peak is replaced with a friendly trustee to the beneficiaries requesting distributions. And then the successor trustee will in fact distribute out the assets. But I think as Jan was trying to emphasize that creditor protection makes an islet, although a simple estate planning vehicle, a fairly robust one. So it's helpful for your beneficiaries to understand that putting assets in trust is not a hindrance to them, it's, it's a benefit for them. That's very true, very true. All right, next question. In general terms, once an islet is set up, how does it work? Well, the first thing after all of the documents are, the trust documents are signed, then the next thing that happens is that the islet needs to become the owner of at least one insurance policy. And to accomplish this, the trustee will generally will be working with the um, grantor's existing insurance advisor. So there are three main ways of getting insurance policies into an islet. The first way is the grantor gifts cash to the islet. And then after the gift of the cash comes in, the trustee sends the crummy notices to the beneficiaries waits the designated amount of time to ensure that they're not exercising their withdrawal rights. And then the trustee uses that cash to purchase a new policy by paying the initial premium. By the time that happens, the trustee will have worked with the uh, insurance advisor to uh, get an application ready to go so that everything is in process. The second way a policy can come into a trust is if the grantor 
makes a gift of an existing policy to the islet. But if the grantor does that, the grantor must survive by three years to avoid having the proceeds subject to estate tax. And gifting an existing policy will itself trigger crimming notices again. The third way a policy can come into an islet is if the grantor sells an existing policy to the islet, generally in exchange for a note. Um, when we do this kind of a sale of a policy to the islet, the trustee will be working with the grantor's attorney because there will be some uh, work done that the attorney will need to do in setting up the promissory note. And if there's a, a sale document that needs to be drafted, the uh, attorney would also prepare that. After the policy, policies are owned by the trust, then it becomes a fairly routine kind of procedure where the grantor makes gifts to the trust in a timely manner sufficient to cover the premiums and expenses whenever the, the trustee receives a gift. The trustee then sends the crummy notices out to the beneficiaries, waits for a period of time to ensure they have not exercised their withdrawal rights, and then issues a check to the insurance company to pay the premium. And so it gets to be fairly routine unless uh, something unexpected comes up, such as perhaps um, uh, uh, there's a desire to buy another policy in the trust or some other little flurry of activity. Mm -hmm. I may be preaching to the choir by saying this, but you also want to make sure that your insurance that's owned by the trust is also the only beneficiary of the life insurance policies. Otherwise, maturity payouts can get a little, little tricky. Oh, definitely. That's that. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So if you go to the first option where the, the islet itself is buying a brand new policy, then pretty much that is written, you know, you'll be signing, the trustee will be signing the application and we'll make sure that the trust is listed both as the owner and the beneficiary. In the transfer of an existing policy to the trust, the trustee will make sure that the beneficiary and the owner are both changed to the trust. The grantor would need to be the one to sign the change of ownership to the trust. But once that's done, the trustee will then request a change of the beneficiary to the trust. And those will all be done at the same time to ensure that there's no lapse in the change of the owner or the beneficiary. Thank you for expanding on that. All right. Next we have, what are the trustee duties associated with islets? Well, an islet is an irrevocable trust. So a trustee is going to have the same fiduciary duties for an islet as it would have for an irrevocable trust, um, except there are a few other duties that are kind of specific to insurance policies. And the trustee of an islet is going to have all of these duties unless those duties are waived. So for example, 
a trustee of an islet is going to still have a duty to diversify, which is it's a fiduciary duty in any irrevocable trust, unless, for example, the prudent investor rule is waived. So in an islet, generally it becomes problematic if we don't, if the duty to diversify is not waived, because that might mean that the trustee should hold assets other than life insurance. And then if the grantor was not intending to put other assets in the trust, then you have a situation that the, puts a trustee in a difficult spot in not being able to diversify. Trustee also has a duty to do monitoring. Monitor the investments within a policy if it's, for example, a variable policy, a duty to monitor the financial condition of the insurer, the insurance company, and a duty to monitor the ongoing suitability of a particular policy. Does a particular policy still meet the needs and the intent of the grantor as expressed in the trust document? And the problem with the trustee having all of these duties, now, first of all, a trustee can perform all of that, can perform all of these duties. The problem with it is it becomes very time consuming and also involves hiring experts because the trustee itself does not have the expertise to be able to monitor some of these requirements and would have to hire someone to do that. So that involves time and expense that will make the cost of it, of administration of an islet substantially higher than if those duties are waived. And most grantors will choose to waive those duties because the higher cost is just not worth it to them. And so they and they voluntarily will agree to do that in order to keep the fees at a much more reasonable rate. However, that being said, somebody does need to be watching the policies and particularly the performance of the policies. The insurance advisor is generally someone who's been working with the grantor for who knows how long, how many years, and often the insurance advisor is also the grantor's investment advisor for investment purposes other than insurance. And so the insurance advisor typically will be monitoring the policy anyway. The um, grantor should alert the trustee of any change in circumstances in the family situation that might affect the suitability of current policies owned by the islet. And then um, the trustee will then talk with the insurance advisor and there'll be a discussion about if anything should be changed. Do we need to do a, an exchange of an existing policy for a new policy that might be more appropriate? That's just an example. But the insurance advisor is usually the one who can make that determination. So those are the major duties involved uh, specifically with islets. Sure. With um, islets, you are speaking to maintaining the relationship with the investment advisor. 
the insurance advisor, excuse yes. me. Mm -hmm. And I can only speak for Peak, but Peak, we strongly encourage grantors to maintain that relationship. And we also encourage communication between the trustee and the insurance advisor on an ongoing basis. Yes, yes, exactly. All right. Okay, our next question, how should the attorney and insurance advisor work together to set expectations with clients about the administration of an islet? It's very important that the grantors completely understand the procedures involved in making gifts to the trust and how crummy notices work and withdrawal rights work. The grantors need to understand that a trustee cannot simply say no to a beneficiary who wants to exercise withdrawal rights because the beneficiary has the legal right under the trust document to exercise those, those rights. So because the trustee absolutely cannot say no in that situation, the grantors really do need to have communication with the beneficiaries concerning the purpose of the trust and why the grantor set the trust up. It was to benefit the beneficiaries. And, but there are certain, you know, things that need to happen within the trust uh, to make that happen. So they need to communicate the reasons why the beneficiaries are receiving crummy notices so that the current, so that the beneficiaries are not caught off guard. And speaking of being caught off guard, it really makes, it catches the trustee off guard if out of the blue they get a phone call from a beneficiary saying, wow, I just received this notice from you and I get money from this trust. They are very excited about this. So at that point, I actually have had that happen. And again, the trustee cannot tell the beneficiary no, you cannot do this. <laughs> we do need to have your request in writing. And that is standard procedure at PEAK. We do need to have beneficiaries requests for anything in writing. So I told that beneficiary, please write a letter to us and you know, saying you wanna exercise your withdrawal right and sign it with your original signature and mail that letter to us. And then the other thing I said was that it was very nice of the grantor to set this trust up for your benefit. Have you ever talked to your, to your, and I don't remember if it was a grandparent or an uncle or whoever, but have you talked to that person about why they set this trust up? And he said, no. <laughs> so I said, you know, that was a very kind thing your, your grandfather did for you. Um, I think you should give them a call and just thank them and then have a discussion about what the purpose of this trust is and why it was set up. Uh, and the beneficiary said they would do that. And subsequently, I never received another word from that beneficiary. <laughs> so the grantor clearly had a discussion with the beneficiary. Right. So by having that conversation, I think it's just something we should emphasize, it's not the tail wagging the dog here. By having the grantor have this conversation with their beneficiaries, you are allowing the trust to uphold its purpose for the beneficiaries. 
you're not giving more information than what's due. Um, you're not uh, giving them the keys to the asylum, so to speak. <laughs> you're just making sure that your intended purpose is upheld. And Jan was going to say about why the grantor needs to have this conversation specifically, as opposed to the trustee having the conversation with the beneficiary. Um, the trustee can't be put in a position where it looks like the trustee is trying to talk a beneficiary out of exercising the um, withdrawal rights. The trustee absolutely cannot do that. If the, if the beneficiary wants to exercise those withdrawal rights, the trustee must comply with that. So, um, but it does put the trust in a little bit of a difficult situation if there's a premium due and not enough money to cover it. So the grantor needs to be aware that if a beneficiary does exercise withdrawal rights, they have the right to do that. But the grantor is going to need to then make another gift to the trust. And a lot of trusts have the power, give the power to the grantor to exclude certain beneficiaries from receiving uh, Kermie Wright notices for certain gifts to the trust. And if a document provides for that, the grantor can make an additional gift to the trust and exclude that particular beneficiary from receiving a crummy notice for this next gift. Um, so there, there are ways of dealing with it, but, and it's fine if the crummy, if the beneficiaries make crummy notices, as long as everybody's on board in terms of, you know, what happens and, and why, mm -hmm. just that people need an understanding. Absolutely. Okay, and then another thing that the grantor needs to be clear on is the necessity of making gifts to the trust in a timely manner. So grantors need to plan ahead and they need to keep in mind. So for example, if uh, premiums due in May every year and it's a substantial premium, so this is most mostly important for larger premiums, but it does apply to all of them. But let's say there's a $50,000 premium due in May. The, the grantor has to plan ahead, put it on his calendar, his or her calendar, so that they know I'm gonna need to transfer money around so that I have 50,000 cash available to send to the trustee. And they need to do that, send those funds about at least six weeks ahead of time if at all possible. Otherwise, it puts the trustee in a bind because we need to send out the crummy notices. We need to wait for the time period to lapse for the exercise of those crummy notices. Then we have to process a check and get that sent to the, to the insurance company and get it sent before the due date. So it's very difficult for the trustee when the gifts do not come in in a timely manner. We're not trying to make life difficult for the grantor by any means, but they put a lot of time and effort into setting up the islet. We just wanna ensure we're on the same page with the grantor, but we just wanna ensure that things get done in a timely manner so that everything can run smoothly. How do tax returns for an islet work? 
Well, most islets are grantor trusts. And in my experience, they have EINs rather than utilizing the grantor's social security number. So that means that if there's any income coming into the trust, the trust needs to file a tax return, which is called a grantor return, which shows that all the income earned by the trust will show up on the grantor's personal income tax return, must be reported by the grantor there. But that being said, this is just a reminder that the income earned within a policy itself is not taxable to the trust. That is tax-free income. It's earned within a policy. But what the, the place where we run into issues with income into the trust comes when the grantor makes a gift of cash to the trust particularly for a large amount of cash, if we have a large premium coming up, and the trustee then needs to hold the cash on its system for a period of time while the criminal notices go out, while the time period expires for the withdrawal right notices to be exercised, and for processing a check and getting it mailed to the insurance company. During that time period, if you have a large premium, $50,000, $75,000, it's sitting in the account for a period of time earning interest. So that interest will probably be enough to generate a return or to necessitate the filing of a grantor return by the trust. So a workaround is to hold the cash during this period of time in a non-interest bearing account mm -hmm. because the cost of the tax preparation, the cost of paying the CPA fee for preparing a tax return for this interest generally will be greater than the amount of interest that is earned. And economically, it just doesn't make sense to keep it in an interest bearing account. So that's, that's an easy workaround, and we do that for most of the islets that hold solely life insurance. Right, right. So basically what you want with an islet is streamlined, low-complexity, repetitive for your yes. administration. Yes. Okay. Our final question. Are there any benefits to using a top-tier jurisdiction like Alaska or Nevada for an islet? Well, as we mentioned earlier, one of the really nice benefits of having an islet is it provides creditor protection to the beneficiaries. And Alaska and Nevada are both top tier jurisdictions for creditor protection. Additionally, islets, particularly ones that hold large policies, uh, are very frequently designed as dynasty trusts. And again, both Alaska and Nevada are very good jurisdictions, top tier for dynasty trusts. Then um, a third benefit is dealing with uh, my comments earlier about grantors waiving certain duties of the trustee in order to keep the fees and costs down. And for uh, a brand new islet that's being formed, those waiver provisions can be put right in the trust document. 
but when it comes to an existing islet that might be transferred to an Alaska trustee, um, those waiver provisions might not be in that document. And Alaska actually has a statute that can be where the trustee can file an election to have the statute apply. And that particular statute actually is itself a waiver of these monitoring duties in particular. So that's just a, a little uh, safe net, safety net if in fact you have a existing trust that is being transferred to Alaska. And then finally, for islets that hold policies that have high premiums, Alaska is really a great jurisdiction for reducing the amount of premium tax. So it is one of the, um, it has uh, some of the lowest premium tax in the country on premiums over $100,000. Alaska's uh, premium tax is only eight basis points on those premiums, which makes it very attractive for trusts that hold large policies. So um, that's pretty much the end of my comments. All right. Thanks, Jan. This was a great overview of how ILET administration works. This should serve as a starting point to help clients understand how an ILET can fit into their overall estate plans. We appreciate you for being here. And thank you, Amber, for talking with me.